We are continuing our series on James. Uh, this morning we are on James chapter 4, uh, first 10 verses of chapter 4. If you're following in the Pew Bible, that's on page 1012 and one, uh, 1013. Uh, keep your finger there, actually. Uh, let's turn first to Isaiah 25. I'll be reading verse nine, uh, 8 and 9. If you're following in the Pew Bible, that's on page 586. Isaiah 25, verse 8 and 9. Uh, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be, uh, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now to James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Uh, Grass withers, flowers fade. But the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Uh, O Lord, our God, uh, let the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So far, uh, James has been leading us to assume that the church is messy. Uh, We've been assuming that people um, who have been favoring the rich and dishonoring the poor have been causing a mess in the church. 
because they couldn't control their tongues and they were operating from the wisdom from below. That's why the church is so messy. But we've been assuming that along. But now James is confirming what we've been assuming. There are actual conflicts and, and disputes uh, in the community of Jesus. Uh, because as it turns out, even in the church, even where the gospel is present, many are argumentative and fighting against each other. And there's something deeply wrong with that. Uh, why? Because fighting is unbecoming for a community that follows Jesus. Because Jesus turns our spears into pruning hooks. Jesus' friends ought to be peaceful, not contentious. Uh, in these verses, uh, James shows us what it looks like to be friends of God. And I want us to hold on to this simple idea this morning. And it's this. Being a friend of God means unfriending the world by living a humble life of repenting and lamenting. Being a friend of God means unfriending the world by living a humble life of repenting and lamenting. And our outline will go like this, uh, very simple. First one is befriending the world. Second point is befriending the Lord. Uh, so James starts by asking, why are y'all fighting and making war with each other? Where is all this mess coming from? Uh, people are arguing and criticizing one another. They're hostile and antagonistic. Uh, remember what James just said about the wisdom from above. It's to be shown and grown in peace. Uh, but there's so much conflict going on that people were actually fighting, physical fighting. I mean, fist fights, bruises and contusions. Can you imagine a community like that? How can you center your faith on the cross and still be fighting? Well, it's a contradiction. The cross makes us give ourselves, not throw punches. So what's causing people to act like this, even in the church? Well, here's James's answer. He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Well, at this point, that's not a surprising answer, because James talked about this before. He's picking up on something he said in chapter 1, where he pointed out that sin comes from the inside. It comes when we give in to our evil desires, and when they are what drives us, and it results in conflicts and fights with each other. Uh, for James, then... That's actually where the real fighting happens. The real war is happening within us, not among us. The battle is not really with other people, or as Paul says, we don't fight against flesh and blood. The fight is in our hearts. That's, uh, there's a war going on inside over our passions. And by passions, James means pleasures, the things that we desire uh, that give us delight. Uh, now, pleasures are good when we submit them to God, like sex, for instance, right? Sex is good when we submit, them, submit it to the Lord in marriage. 
Uh, but pleasures become bad when we want them on our terms, out of a sense of entitlement. Uh, Peter calls them the passions of the flesh. Uh, Jesus tells a parable that explains what James is talking about. Uh, do you remember the parable of the sower? It's a very famous one. Uh, the sower went out to scatter seeds, which, which Jesus tells us is the word of God. And the seeds that land on different places, uh, which are the conditions of people's hearts. Uh, but listen to Jesus' explanation of the seeds that fell among the thorns. Uh, he said, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Uh, you see, bad pleasures or passions are that powerful. They're able to choke the word out of us so that we can't grow, so that we can't be fruitful and mature. James says they're the pleasures that causes us to covet. What's coveting? Uh, well, it's when you become super bitter over people's achievements or success. It's ungodly jealousy. It's when you say, that should be me, not you. I deserve that, not you. I wonder if you ever find yourself saying that in your hearts. Because if you do, then you know the kind of internal war that James is talking about. But James goes further. He says, these pleasures don't only make us covet, they even make us murder. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's some serious stuff, isn't it? But I have a hard time imagining that actual first-degree murder was going on inside the church. It's possible. It's happened before. Uh, but it's easier for me to imagine that uh, James is alluding to what Jesus said about anger in the Sermon of, uh, on the Mount, where Jesus regarded anger as murder. So at the least, there was intense anger going on in the congregation, People were mad, super mad at each other because of this war that's going on inside of them. But here's the thing. We know that God is not stingy. He wants to give uh, these people and us what's good. But they weren't coming to Him in prayer. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. And when they do pray... It's not for the right reason. They are asking for more things to satisfy their cravings for pleasure. They are prioritizing the things that makes them more comfortable and at ease. I mean, what kind of prayer is that? God is not a genie in a bottle to spoil you. I think this should be a gut check for us. What do our prayers look like? Listen, as Americans, we are trained to feel like we never have enough. We are so used to having a lot of stuff. At least we want a lot of stuff. Some of us don't have a lot of stuff. But it's there, that's that desire for more. Because our culture tells us that life is about accumulation and, and consumption. 
we are discipled to have an insatiable desire for more. They want you to believe that you won't be happy if you don't get what you want. I really like what one writer calls it. He calls it the myth of scarcity. It's the myth that God won't provide for you. So you got to live like you're on a game show. you got to grab as much stuff as you can while you can, even if it means double-crossing people. Do you know what James calls that? When we fight others for our pleasures and wants. He calls it adultery. Isaiah says, God is our maker and he is our husband. That was Israel's relationship to the Lord and that's our relationship to him. But when we put our pleasures first, we are cheating on God. It is heartbreaking infidelity towards God. I want you to think about how painful Painful adultery is. Can you imagine someone cheating on you? The one who said, In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, that person goes and sleeps with another person. That's what we're doing when we commit ourselves to our pleasures. We are breaking God's heart. Do you tremble at that thought, or do you just brush it off when it's about your pleasures? Uh, This is really what's behind James's well-known phrase, friendship with the world. So friendship for James is more than just mere camaraderie or having things in common and hanging out. No, it's a deep-seated relationship with another. It's to love the pleasures of the world. It's to value what it values. Uh, Notice James doesn't say you can't be friends with unbelievers, with secular people, that you can't be friends with sinners, because even Jesus did that. James's warning is about adapting the value system of the world as your own. It starts in the heart. Friendship with the world is first forged in the heart. When you give your heart to its pleasures, that's what it looks like to be a friend of the world. Uh, I think James is alluding back to Abraham. Uh, Because remember what he said about Abraham Abraham in chapter 2. Abraham, James said, was a friend of God. Because he had a living faith. I think James wants us to see the difference between Abraham's friendship with God and those who are friends with the world. Abraham left home and family to follow the Lord. But friends of the world covet. Abraham was willing to put to death what was most precious to him, his promised son, Isaac, but friends of the world murder to get what they want. I hope you see how in opposition these two types of friendships are. But what's the point? Uh, You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God at the same time. It's impossible. 
James says, if the world is your friend, then God is your enemy. Don't take that, don't take that warning lightly, friends. It's no small thing to be an enemy of the living God. Your earthly enemies can do only so much to you. Don't fear them, fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, James is saying, if you don't hit the unfriend button on the world, then you can't be God's friend. You can't have both on your profile, right? Uh, John puts, puts it like this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. To love the world is to hate God. To be devoted to the pleasures of life is to be an enemy of God. Uh, But James gives us some good news here. Uh, And it's this, God is a passionate lover and friend. He's not disinterested in us because he takes pleasure in the spirit that he's put in us. Uh, Paul gets at this when he said, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That means that God is committed to us. Uh, We hear about this every 10 weeks, don't we? Because that's what God tells us in the second commandment. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for the spirit that he's put in us. Uh, So why do I say this is good news for us? Well, let me put it like this. Uh, You know, I love my wife so much. Uh, She's the apple of my eye. And if anyone is flirting with her and trying to win her heart, man, you know it's going down, right? I have to get after it. Um, it's, It's not because I'm insecure or I don't trust my wife or that she'll find someone better. No, it's because I love my wife. It's because I love her. How much more with the Lord, right? The Lord is jealous for you. He loves you. He's seeking your heart. He's jealous for you. Isn't that good news? That even in our love affair with the world, God says God gives more grace. That's good news. Uh, But here's the thing, though. God wants us unto His love. We can't just receive grace without responding. That's never how grace works. Friendship with God requires costly response. It comes with a price, and you can't buy it with money. So what does God want from us? James' answer is super simple. He says, be humble. Lower yourself. Get off your prideful high horse and make yourself low. Because God desires contrition from you. Well, that's, that's also not surprising. I mean, who has been at the center of God's affection in this letter? Who receives divine preferences? Well, it's not the rich, it's not the proud, it's not the self-seeking. No, God is for the lowly and vulnerable. He's for the orphans and the widows. He's for the poor and the oppressed. Because He has has a heart for the humble. Those are the only kinds of people God chooses to be friends with. So if you can't humble yourself, you can't be God's friend. 
James is driving home this point, that if you can't, if you, uh, if, that if you want to align yourself with God, then you have to humble yourself. Humility, after all, is the only posture adulterers can take. It is to acknowledge that you're not entitled, entitled to a relationship with God. It must come entirely from grace. Uh, James, drawing from Proverbs 3, says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what does that look like? How do we humble ourselves according to James? Well, the first thing he says, submit to God. Submitting to God is to say yes to Him. It's to say, I am pledging my allegiance to this Lord and not that Lord. It's saying yes to God and not myself or the world. I'm going to obey God no matter what. Uh, it looks like Abraham saying yes to God while, he, uh, while his promised son is on the altar. It looks like Jesus saying yes to his father while hanging on the cross. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, God is going to call you to say yes to him in hard places. The question is whether you will submit to him when that happens. Will your allegiance to him waver? Will you remain loyal to him when you have cancer, or when God doesn't meet your expectations, will you cling to Him? Will you trust Him to be a faithful friend? Well, the other side of submitting to God is resisting the devil. Uh, James is using military language here. Some of you might be familiar. Uh, he's showing us the intensity of this resistance Resisting the devil is going to be a hard-fought battle. James says to resist the accuser. Say no to him uh, and all the lies that he's telling you. Reject the notion that you have to have more, that you're always in competition with other people, that God doesn't love you enough to give you what you want. Uh, Pastor Brad preached on how Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness last week. Uh, it's crazy how our sermons keep overlapping. I think God knows what he's doing, right? Um, anyway, we, we heard how Jesus submitted to his father. He said yes to his father and said no to the devil. In, in great weakness, Jesus resisted all the devil's temptations. He refused to put himself first. Then uh, we were told the devil fled from Jesus. I think that's exactly the kind of fight James has in mind here. He wants us to follow Jesus' example of strong resistance by humility. Uh, you know, there's temptations in your life, even right now, that you need to resist. When you're tempted to trample on others to get what you want... Resist the devil. When you're tempted to be angry with your brother or your sister, resist the devil. I hope you see a little chant going on here. When you're tempted to be prideful, resist the devil. You supply your own. Whatever your temptation is, resist the devil. And God promises that he will flee from you. The devil, that is. 
uh, James goes on to say, uh, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Uh, James is assuming something here. He's assuming that we've wandered, that there's a distance between us and God, that we've turned away from Him. Uh, Drawing near to God for James is about repentance. It's about turning away from the world and returning to God. Uh, Now this might sound like the initiative is all on us, that it's all up to us, uh, that God simply responds to what we do. But that's not what James is saying, right? James is really just echoing the prophets who came before him. Uh, Here's an example from the prophet Zechariah, where the Lord says, Return to me, and I will return to you. And other prophets use the same language. And remember what James said earlier in chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is, is from above. And what is drawing near to God then? But a good gift, right? A good and perfect gift. Nearness to God is our greatest blessing. Not only in this life, but also to the life to come. But it's not something we earn or are entitled to. It is a gift from our Father. But at the same time, time, uh, like James said about faith, we cannot be passive. We still have to do something. So James says, if you want to draw near to God, then you need to get clean. He puts it like this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice how he addresses them as sinners and double-minded. James wants you to feel the gravity of, uh, of the situation. Sense the aggression in his voice. He's been calling them brothers all along, but now he's calling them sinners and double-minded. Right? Is that serious? Getting after holiness for James is serious business, and it's holistic. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. In other words, it's not just about what you do on the outside, it's also what you do in the inside. Uh, which really corresponds to the problems uh, James has been addressing, to the external fights that people were having, and to the internal war uh, that was going on in their hearts. You see, we need to cleanse our actions, but also our affections. God wants complete purification. It's not enough to clean what people can see. The heart needs a good washing too. Because God sees what's in the inside. He wants your heart to match with what you do with your hands. Uh, Listen to what James goes on to say in verse 9. It's really the posture of those who wishes to be pure and holy. Uh, He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Uh, You might be wondering... But I thought Christianity was a religion of joy. Is James just being an Eeyore? Is James just about doom and gloom? Because it it might sound super depressing. 
Uh, but James is not just a, uh, is not just being negative. I bet you know some of those people, right? People who just can't say anything positive. What did you think of the service today? Well, it wasn't the best. Could have been better. Always negative. Is that person who's never encouraged or never encourages? Or maybe that's you. I don't know. Uh, you may feel uh, the need to criticize everyone all the time. But, but let me tell you, that's not James here. James is not just being a Debbie Downer. James is invoking the practice of lament. Because lamenting in the Bible is an act of wisdom. That's why it's all over the Psalter and the other wisdom books of Israel. Uh, James is part of that tradition. Uh, but let me be clear about something. Uh, lamenting is not about making ourselves feel bad so that other people can affirm us. You know, it, it's not that bad. You're not that bad. Just move on. No, 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 no. That's, that's not real lament. Real lament is an affirmation of our brokenness, that our sin is serious enough to draw us away from God and make Him our enemies. When we truly lament, weeping becomes a humble expression of our repentance. But let me ask this. Um, why is it so hard for people to lament over their sin? Uh, maybe it's because we're conditioned to think that it's a sign of weakness. There's no room for tears in our culture, especially not over sin. Because for the world, it's trivial. God doesn't really hold us accountable. Uh, but, for, but for those who are humble... There should be inner grief manifested in outward sorrow. There's a time to mourn in the Christian life. Over our sin is one of them. We need to give ourselves time to grieve. Stop laughing when you're making friends with the world. That kind of laughter actually exposes our sickness. There's nothing funny about making friends with the world. It's only funny to those who can't bear to hear that they need to repent. Don't kill my vibes, dude, right? Adultery with the world is not a joke. It's not a laughing matter. Uh, but praise be to God that He's the God of reversals. Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is why James doesn't have a problem saying, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Because he knows something that the world doesn't know. And it's this. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Your sorrow over sin won't last forever. One day you will laugh. That's God's promise to you. He promises to lift you up. And draw your tears. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that no one but myself. Uh, beloved, when you look to Jesus, you will find a true friend. You can say to him, What? He, you too? Why? 
because Jesus answered our reality. We have in Jesus a friend who sticks to us closer than a brother because he became one of us. He experienced our brokenness his whole life. He shouldered our griefs on a bloody, cursed Roman cross. There he gave his life for his friends. And as Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. And so Jesus knows intimately our sorrow. He says to us, you got a friend in me. We know this because Jesus wept for us. And because he did, he can promise a great reversal. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And one day, as Isaiah said in our Old Testament reading, he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Our mourning will turn to joy because he will make all things new. That's the good news I preached to you this morning. Uh, let me close with this reflection. I don't think 2020 has been easy on any of us. Please come talk to me later if you think 2020 has been easy. Our country is more divided than ever. Uh, maybe that doesn't surprise many of us. But one thing that has caught many of us off guard, I think, is that even the church is divided. There's infighting and squabbles among believers. Well, all the uncertainty and angst has brought many things to the surface. Uh, one of them is our friendship with the world. Why are so many in the church fighting and arguing? Isn't it, isn't it for the same reason that James told us in our passage? Because we're motivated by our passions, by our comforts and pleasures. It's the reason why we can't be friends. And so, have you made friends with the world? Have you bought into its value system? Do you live for yourself and for your own passions? Are you willing to put others down to get what you want? Do you use your privilege to exploit others? If you can say yes to any of those, then, then James says to humble yourself. Grieve over your sin. Repent of your spiritual adultery. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Uh, you know, the devil loves to tempt us when we're hungry, when we're weak, uh, because the devil is no fool. He knows that there's something to those Snickers commercials, you know those ones? You're not you when you're hungry. But God knows that too. So He invites His hungry friends to this table. I know it doesn't look like much, but this meal is costly, and we have no money. Uh, so Jesus picks up our check, and he says, Friends, this meal's on me. I give my life that your souls might be nourished, that you might say no to the world and no to the devil, and draw near to God. Amen. Let's pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we render to your, your name the praise, the glory, and the honor, for it is, it is worthy. Your name is worthy. You alone are worthy.
We're exceedingly thankful that you have a we, that we have a friend in Jesus who will never leave us nor forsake us. In him we have a friend until the end. And so we're thankful for that reminder this morning. We pray that you would cause your word to take root in us that we might draw near to you, knowing that when we do, you draw near to us. Help us more and more, by your grace, to say no to the devil and to the world. Help us to be better friends to others and to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.